Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week 27, the book of Revelation, chapters 12 and 13. Now we're most of the way through Revelation chapter 12 and we're going to finish it up today move into chapter 13. In chapter 12, open your Bibles, in Revelation chapter 12, verses 10, 11, and 12, form a song. It was sung at a loud volume, we're told, by an unidentified being in heaven. It's a song of victory, of praise, of joy, but it's also a song of warning. And although we covered this in our last lesson, I think it would be beneficial for us to reread it and then for me to summarize it as these verses represent a pivotal moment in God's cosmic plan of redemption and restoration. We're also going to take a minor detour today to help me make a point. So open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 12. We're going to read from verses 10 through 17. I'm going to tell you we're not going to read 18 only because it more correctly belongs to the first verse of the next chapter. Um, So we're going to start reading at 10. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1544. 1544. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now have come God's victory, power, and kingship, and the authority of his Messiah. Because the accuser of our brothers, who accuses them day and night before God, has been thrown out. They defeated him because of the Lamb's blood, because of the message of their witness. Even when facing death, they didn't cling to life. Therefore, Rejoice, heaven and you who live there, but woe to you, land and sea, for the adversary has come down to you. He is very angry because he knows that his time is short. When the dragon saw that he'd been hurled down to the earth, he went in pursuit of the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of a great eagle, so that she could fly to her place in the desert where she is taken care of for a season and two seasons and half a season away from the serpent's presence. The serpent spewed water like a river out of its mouth after the woman in order to sweep her away in the flood. But the land came to her rescue. It opened its mouth and swallowed up the river by which the dragon had spewed out of its mouth. The dragon was infuriated over the woman and he went off to fight the rest of her children, those who obey God's commands and bear witness to Yeshua. As Charles Feinberg noted, this song, verses 10, 11, and 12, this song sung in heaven has as its central theme that heaven and earth are completely out of harmony with one another. So while heaven is rejoicing, the earth is being pummeled by an angry Satan who knows he's about, he's he's not about to be, he has been defeated. 
and his time as the prince of the earth is over. Let's talk for a moment why this disharmony between heaven and earth exists. Now, there's a handful of questions I'm regularly asked. And one of them is, why do I insist that believers ought to continue to obey God's written statutes and commandments as carefully laid out in the Torah? A list of do's and don'ts that is best known as the Law of Moses. And the first thing I always point out is that we have been commanded to obey them by our Savior. Even in the New Testament. Matthew 5, 17-19. I think most of you can recite it by heart by now. Don't think that I've come to abolish the Torah or the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to complete. Yes, indeed, I tell you that until heaven and earth passes away, not so much as a uter or a stroke is going to pass from the Torah. Not until everything that must happen has happened. So whoever disobeys the least of these mitzvot, the least of these commandments, and teaches others to do so, will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever obeys them and so teaches, they will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So the son did not come to override his father's commandments. Next, the title, think about this, the law of Moses. It's misleading. These are not Moses' laws. This is the law of God. It was given by God on Mount Sinai to Moses. Moses just listened. He wrote this down. He communicated it to, his, to God's people. The following part of my answer is that most Christians, or religious Jews for that matter, would not argue that God created the universe and the earth and everything in it and that it is a universe of order and not chaos. The regular rising and setting of the sun, the recurrent changing of the phases of the moon in an exact order, the seasons that come and go, the needed rains that fall from the sky, the way the star patterns in the night sky can be identified, unchanging generation after generation, and so much more said to the ancients that they lived in a world and a cosmos of order. The only question for them was which God or gods ordered it all? Today, the same science that can find no place for God also finds the order of the universe to be more exquisitely arranged than they had thought and grudgingly admits that it is more precisely structured right down to the subatomic level and therefore more predictable in some ways than ever imagined possible. 
So the third part of my reply about why we ought to obey as believers the law of Moses is that it was God who precisely structured and ordered a universe and then placed mankind in it at a specific place at a specific time under specific circumstances. The reason that this structure and order is unchanging is because it's perfect as it is. And these created but non-living objects and, and phenomena like the sun and the moon and the stars and the energy and the matter that pervades our universe, they have no will of their own. Nor has God given them the authority to choose their own destinies. But mankind, oh mankind, we were given a free will. God has given us the authority to choose our paths, and at least in part, our destinies. Therefore, it was necessary, I would say it was an obligation on God's part to give to mankind, to us, a guide to how we can live in harmony with this precisely structured, unchanging physical universe that He created. And therefore, so we can be in harmony with Him, the Creator of it all. Now allow me to give you a simple illustration. Even something as common as a new automobile comes with an owner's manual. Now men, you may not know this, but it does. <laughs> The creators of the automobile know what they've made. How everything was put together and how it's intended to work. All of its parts are ordered in a careful, purposeful synchronization with one another to form a tightly structured system that does not change. But an automobile is a complex system and so that its purpose and function can be utilized properly by a by human, we are given a guide so that we can learn about all of its various parts and its features and how we are to operate them. The automobile was not built to adapt to us. We have to adapt to the automobile. And the purpose of that owner's manual is to show us how to do that so that we can operate with it in harmony. Of course, people being people, you get two types of automobile owners. The type who believes they can just intuitively know how to operate all the various features of the vehicle and so they never open the manual. Instead, they rely only upon their intelligence. But at some point, they inevitably find out they've made some incorrect assumptions about how some features are to work. Or that there are many other useful features they never even knew existed. Or that some features that they expected actually aren't even there. Now the other type of owner 
They immediately immerse him or herself in the owner's manual and flip through it so as to familiarize him or herself with how this vehicle was, was going to be operated. How is it supposed to happen? Some are going to study it carefully. Make sure they keep it handy. So when they find themselves in an unfamiliar circumstance or unsure of how to operate a feature or perhaps find themselves in some sort of an emergency situation, they consult the manual. The law of Moses is the God worshippers owner's manual. When we fail to consult it, when we fail to heed it, we invariably make mistakes and we improperly use God's creation. There are some, especially modern Christians, who have been taught that because they love Jesus, they can behave and choose instinctively. They can discard the owner's manual without ever having opened his pages. In fact, the owner's manual is an unnecessary burden if not altogether obsolete and wrong. And it's not that those believers might not get some good things right and be able to operate their lives some of the time in harmony with God and His creation. But at other times, they find out too late that their assumptions and their instincts were wrong. And they find themselves out of tune with God and with his creation, and often it has devastating consequences. Ever since Adam and Eve, mankind has ventured further and further and further away from God's laws and commandments, believing that we can operate any way we please in a universe that's been designed to operate in only one way. And for centuries the church has largely been complicit in aiding and abetting this detour from truth. God has had a plan from the beginning, though, to remedy this situation. Naturally, His perfectly created and ordered universe is not going to be changed to adapt to our human wants and desires. Rather, He's going to change us to get us into a state of harmony with Him and His creation. And what is necessary for that to come about is the correct leadership. So, in verse 10 of Revelation chapter 12, we read, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now have come God's victory, power, and kingship, and the authority of His Messiah. Because the accuser of our brothers who accuses them day and night before God he's been thrown out here right here this is the moment in history in the future when the leadership and so the direction of humankind changes forever the present leader Satan who urges us to pay no attention to our owner's manuals is pushed aside. And the new leader, Yeshua, God's Messiah, takes control. He's going to rule the earth with authority and what will he use 
as the immutable standard of behavior and justice for mankind so that we can enter into harmony with God's creation? The Torah, the law of Moses, the very standard that he said in Matthew 5 would not pass away. Until when? Heaven and earth pass away. But he also said that the Torah would remain as the standard by which all believers are going to be measured and that standard would also establish a hierarchy of godly society in the millennial kingdom. And the hierarchy Yeshua announced is those who obey and teach the standard. The Torah and the law are going to be the greatest. Those who disobey and teach against that standard are going to be the least. Where might we expect those to fit in the hierarchy who teach there is no standard? We even read in the final eight chapters of the book of Ezekiel how during the reign of Christ in the millennial kingdom, the temple system, along with Levite priests, temple workers, an altar with sacrifices, and the requirement to make the God-ordained pilgrimages to the temple for the biblical feast, and so much more are going to be reinstated. And we're told... Christ is going to rule with an iron rod. What does that mean? It means no tolerance for sin and disobedience. None. Verse 11 of chapter 12, which is the second stanza of this psalm, gives us the reason why this change of leadership occurred. It says it was a combination of Christ's sacrificial death on the cross, His blood, and the willingness of His followers to be obedient to Him unto death, even at times as martyrs. And the outcome, says verse 13, is there's rejoicing in heaven because God's plan has finally been fulfilled in heaven. The Father has replaced the evil one with His own Son. Yet, while heaven has been rid of Satan and his followers, again, this is the future, the earth has not. So the earth's woes from the seal and the trumpet judgments are but the prelude for even worse conditions as Satan has nowhere else to go but earth. He's angry. He's going to cause as much death and destruction to God's creation as he can with what little time he has left. Perhaps even holding on to a false hope that somehow he can escape his fate. Moving on to verse 13. Satan is again called the dragon. And as a result of his complete and permanent banishment from heaven, he goes hunting for some payback. He decides to take his anger out on his historical victim, Israel. 
the producer of the Messiah that has defeated him. The guy that's taken his place as ruler of the earth. Now obviously the woman who gave birth to the male child cannot symbolize Mary in this case because this is a future event, a future event for John. It's not a review of the past. Thus in this case, the woman alludes to the primary essence of the symbol, which is Israel. But is it all Israel who flees to the desert from atheists to the ultra-orthodox to the messianic? Or is it just part? We're going to talk about that shortly. So here the exodus motif of God spiriting Israel away on the wings of an eagle reappears. As Israel, the woman, is said to be given eagle's wings to hurry and escape the wrath of the evil one. In the Torah, in Exodus 19.4, we read this. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Further in the Torah, Deuteronomy 32, 10 through 12. He found his people in desert country in a howling, wasted wilderness. He protected him and cared for him and guarded him like the pupil of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up her nest, hovers over her young, spreads out her wings, takes them and carries them as she flies. Adonai alone led his people. No alien god was with him. So the idea of the eagle and the eagle's wings is symbolic of the way of God to transport his people to a place he wants them to go. But also it is of the eagle being able to protect those that it transports. We are, of course, to take this figuratively regarding the fleeing of the woman. No actual feathered wings of an eagle are involved any more than they were during Israel's exodus from Egypt. The wilderness, the desert, is in the Bible a simultaneously literal and symbolic place of refuge and preparation. Now, no doubt, this is yet another... Uh, well, let me back up. Okay. We're told in verse 14 that the woman gets nourished in the desert, in the wilderness. So this is no doubt yet another expression that has a dual meaning. It's meant to be taken literally and symbolically. Since Israel is going to be cared for for a rather extended period of time, then it's self-evident that the people of Israel are going to need nourishment. They're going to need food. But the Bible also refers to spiritual nourishment. Yeshua says man cannot live on bread alone. Thus, just as with the Exodus, when food was literally rained from the sky to physically nourish the Israelites, so was spiritual nourishment given in the form of the Torah, being given to them so that they could practice it, so that they could live in harmony with God's creation during their time in the wilderness. Some type of unnamed Spiritual nourishment will therefore be accomplished during the time that Israel has fled from the dragon to a safe harbor. 
Now the time period of Israel's protection is the same as it was for the two witnesses to live and prophesy. 1,260 days. And yet, the time of Israel's protection was not expressed in numerical digits. But rather in this mysterious prophetic phrase that originated in Daniel. A time, times, and half a time. Now we can be certain that this is referring to 1,260 days or three and a half years because back in verse 6, this same event is spoken of, although very briefly, and the numerical time frame is given as 1,260 days. In some way or another, the woman, Israel, is kept safe from the influence and the reach of Satan who is here called the serpent. So this is just a reminder for us that the dragon and the serpent are two names for the same being, Satan. Well, when the woman Israel flees and starts to get beyond Satan's reach, verses 15 and 16 say that he spews water like a river out of his mouth to sweep her away in a flood but the land opened its mouth and swallowed up the water now this is a very difficult passage to get a handle on for correct interpretation the bottom line isn't difficult Satan tries to destroy Israel but God supernaturally intervenes and thwarts his evil effort however understanding the symbolism of it is challenging and there is more than one reasonable way to interpret it This could be Satan attempting his version of the Great Flood. In the original Great Flood, God destroyed the wicked while protecting the righteous. Here Satan wants to kill the righteous and preserve the wicked. And indeed, it could involve an actual deluge of water. Or the flood of water could mean symbolically Uh, could be meant symbolically, especially when we notice the very interesting wordplay that centers around the word mouth. That is, while Satan spews the destructive water out of his mouth, the earth opens up its mouth, presumably at God's command, and it just swallows what Satan has spewed. The earth opening its mouth is, in earlier parts of the Bible, equivalent to a fissure opening up in the ground that swallowed wicked people. But also, it is the opening into a pit or a cave. However, the mouth is also where speech, it's where God's oracles emit from. So this could mean that the Israeli refugees are being pursued with monstrous lies, fake news. In order that wherever they tried to flee to, the government of that place at the pressure of their citizens would not allow them to stay. So if that's the case, then the water is merely symbolic of a destructive force. 
But it's not actual water. Rather, it's slanderous speech. We just can't know at this point very much beyond that. Now, verse 17 explains that as a result of his failure to destroy the woman, Israel, who has fled to a protected place, in his fury, it says, Satan sets off after the rest of her children. Again, this is a very difficult passage with various possibilities. There's at least a couple of difficulties here. First of all, exactly what part of Israel is fleeing and being protected? And second, when we're told that Satan set off to fight the rest of her children, does this mean he gave up trying to destroy that group in the desert and so decided to go after a different group? Or is it still referring to that group of Israelis in the desert wilderness, but it's only a remnant of them? Now I'm going to address the second question first because I think it's the most straightforward. The wording makes it clear to me, and all the Bible versions agree on this, that Satan is frustrated over not being able to lay his hands upon the group that fled into the wilderness. So it's self-evident that he's now going to go after a different groups that he thinks he can reach. However, the first question is a lot harder to ascertain. Now the rather standard evangelical Christian position is that the woman represents believers. And since the Gentile church has replaced Israel from their replacement theology worldview, then those who flee into the wilderness aren't Jews at all. They're not even believing Jews. They're Gentile Christians. Replacement Israelites. An offshoot of this doctrine that seeks to downplay what I think is the rather insulting an obvious twisting of the scriptures in order to diminish, erase really, the participation of Jewish believers in Christ is that the woman fleeing into the wilderness represents believers who are Messianic Jews. Probably those living in Israel at the time. Now rather than give you numerous possible interpretations, and there are many, I'm just going to give you mine. I guess I feel fairly secure in it. The woman symbolizes Israel in general. And using today's situation and terminology, we're saying the Jewish people. And it is, in this case, the Jewish people living in Israel who are fleeing to a safe place because it speaks of only one place prepared for them. Not several for the many diaspora Jews living in other countries around the globe, most of whom live nowhere near a desert. Now no doubt these Jews living in Israel are going to have some kind of warning of impending persecution. But like the Holocaust, many will heed it and some won't. So not every Jew of Israel is going to flee. We have no idea how many will go or stay. And then after Satan finds he can't reach those Israeli Jews of all flavors that did flee, he will go after another target. 
And when we read that he went off to fight the rest of her children, that is supplemented by the additional words of description that say this. And oh, this is so interesting. The rest are said to be those who obey God's commandments and bear witness to Yeshua. Interesting combination. When we read that, then clearly we're talking about believers in Christ that Satan is now pursuing. And yet the words, those who obey God's commandments, is a very intriguing modifier that is anything but a throwaway phrase. I think there are a few Christians today that would say that they are those who obey God's commandments, but most would not. Because God's commandments is a phrase that generally means the law of Moses. And to most Christians, God's commandments are seen as dead and gone. God's commandments have no place in their lives. Now for sure, this is a different group than the one who fled to the desert wilderness because the passage says that the dragon went off to fight the rest of her children. The word rest is loipoi in Greek and it means the remainder. So who are these who both obey God's commandments and bear witness to Yeshua? Hmm. First, this best describes Messianic Jews. Second, it also describes Gentile Christians who have come to the conclusion that the law of Moses, God's commandments, and in the Bible that's all that's ever meant by that word, God's commandments and the Torah apply to them as well. So to be clear, the group that flees and goes into the desert for refuge are Israeli Jews, a mix of Jews, a cross-section of Jewish society who lived in Israel. The second group, the one the devil goes after when he can't apprehend, he can't get to, those Israeli Jews, because they're under God's protection, are believers in Yeshua, but they're a mix of Gentile and Jewish believers who have a very specific trait in common. They obey God's commandments. Meaning, they acknowledge, at least, the continuing relevance of the Torah and do their best to follow the law of Moses. Now, I readily admit that it isn't impossible that the term those who obey God's commandments is another term that just means Christians in general without distinction. But then one wonders how the term would add anything to explaining that this is the group that bears witness to Christ. I mean, I, I just find that possibility too remote, too illogical to even consider it. Because indeed, one can be a saved believer and bear witness to Yeshua, but not necessarily also be one who works to obey God's commandments. In fact, 
That might describe maybe 99% of the institutional church today. And we know that believers who essentially disregard the Torah can be saved from several New Testament passages, but we learn it especially from Christ's own mouth in Matthew 5, 17 through 19. All right? Because there he doesn't say, if you refuse to obey the Torah, you can't be part of the kingdom of heaven. What does he say you will be? You will be the least. Well, let's move on to Revelation chapter 13. Now, please note that we're going to start, when I start to read, with what our Bibles label as chapter 12, verse 18, because it really belongs as verse 1 of chapter 13. So we're going to read it all. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, we're on page 1544. Then the dragon stood on the seashore, and I saw a beast come up out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads. On its horns were ten royal crowns, on its heads blasphemous names. The beast which I saw was like a leopard, but with feet like those of a bear and a mouth like the mouth of a lion. To it the dragon gave its power, its throne, and great authority, and one of the heads of the beast appeared to have received a fatal head wound. But its fatal wound was healed, and the whole earth followed after the beast in amazement. And they worshipped the dragon, because he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, well, who's like the beast? Who can fight against it? It was given a mouth, speaking arrogant blasphemies, and it was given authority to act for 42 months. So, it opened its mouth in blasphemies against God, to insult his name and his Shekinah and those living in heaven. And it was allowed to make war on God's holy people and to defeat them. And it was given authority over every tribe and people and language and nation. And everyone living on earth will worship it except those whose names are written in the book of life belonging to the lamb slaughtered before the world was founded. Those who have ears, let them hear. If anyone is meant for captivity, into captivity he goes. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword he is to be killed. This is when God's holy people must persevere and they must trust. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth and it had two horns like those of a lamb but it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and it makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, the one whose fatal head wound had been healed. It performs great miracles, even causing fire to come down from heaven onto the earth as people watch. It deceives the people living on earth by the miracles it's allowed to perform in the presence of the beast and it tells them to make an image honoring the beast that was struck by the sword became alive again. It was allowed to put breath into the image of the beast so that the image of the beast could even speak. And it was allowed to cause anyone who would not worship the image of the beast to be put to death. Also, it forces everyone, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead, preventing anyone from buying or selling unless he has the mark. That is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. 
This is where wisdom is needed. Those who understand should count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a person. And its number is 666. Now, as I've stated, as a foundational matter since the introduction to Revelation, John's apocalypse is fully dependent upon Old Testament prophecies, and chief among these are the prophets Ezekiel and Daniel. Now, this chapter especially is connected to Daniel. And when we minimize or we dismiss that connection in context and revelation can be fashioned into almost any number of stories and outcomes. You know, it's often said in Christianity that the devil operates primarily through deception. And one of those deceptions is to mimic the nature and character of God. We see that in action, especially in chapter 13. Now, it can get somewhat confusing as we try to understand the identity of the dragon and separate him from the sea beast and from the land beast. So to start this chapter, we have the dragon standing on the seashore. And he watches as the sea beast emerges from the waves, perhaps even calls for the sea beast to emerge. Now what throws us a little bit is that this sea beast sounds exactly like what we read about in the dragon in chapter 12. Here in 13, the beast from the sea has ten horns and seven heads. And in chapter 12, there was a sign in heaven of a great red dragon that had ten horns and seven heads. And then a little later in chapter 12, we were told that the great dragon, the serpent, the devil, and Satan are all names for the same evil being. And so we have the dragon, Satan, standing on the seashore watching or maybe calling forth this beast who also has ten horns and seven heads, exactly the same as the dragon, and he watches its surface. Now the land beast, which is a second beast that comes later on in chapter 13, is very different from the dragon and the sea beast that are nearly identical to one another. Here's the first thing to understand. This is the devil mimicking the close association and unity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That is, we speak of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We acknowledge that these are separate persons, really because we just can't find a better word than persons to describe them, even though we know that's pretty inadequate. And that each can be spoken of individually. And each seems to have different tasks and can manifest in different forms. Underlying it all, however, is a supernatural unity and purpose. So in the end, they're all God. 
So we need to see the dragon, the sea beast, and the land beast similarly. We have Satan, the dragon, Satan, the sea beast, and Satan, the land beast. They each can be spoken of individually. They each seem to have different tasks. They can manifest in different forms. But there is this underlying unity among them, influenced by the same evil spirit for the same evil purposes. In the end, they're all Satan. We can speak of it that way. The sea beast, although it has seven heads and ten horns, just like the dragon, does have slight differences from the dragon. For one thing, even though the sea beast wears diadems, crowns, as does the dragon, the sea beast wears its ten crowns on its ten horns. The dragon wears its seven crowns on its seven heads. The sea beast seems to wear crowns on its horns because its heads were something else. Blasphemous names, we're told. Verse 2 describes something straight out of Daniel's vision. So let's go to Daniel to help help us set up the context. We're going to read all of Daniel chapter 7 because there's so many elements of this chapter that find their way into chapter 13. So go to Daniel chapter 7, which is page 1098 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. 1098. No, it's not 1098. That's the beginning of Daniel. Just a minute here. Find it. Here we go. Daniel, chapter 7 is page 11. Oh, 08. Oh, 09, sorry. 1109, sorry. Daniel chapter 7. We're going to read it all. Hang in there with me. Because this is important to understanding Revelation. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babel, Daniel had a dream and visions in his head as he was lying on his bed. And he wrote the dream down. And this is his account. I had a vision at night and I saw there before me the four winds of the sky breaking out over the great sea. Four huge animals came up out of the sea each different from the others. Now the first one was like a lion, it had eagle's wings, and as I watched its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted off the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a human heart was given to it. Then there was another animal, a second one like a bear, and it raised itself up on one side and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth and it was told, get up and gorge yourself with flesh. And after this I looked and there was another one like a leopard with four bird's wings on its sides, and this animal also had four heads. And it was given power to rule. And after this I looked in the night visions and there before me was a fourth animal, dreadful, horrible, extremely strong, with great iron teeth and it devoured and crushed and stamped its feet on what was left. It was different from all the animals that had gone before it. It had ten horns. And while I was considering the horns, another horn sprang up among them, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots and in this horn were eyes like human eyes and a mouth speaking arrogantly 
And as I watched, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient One took his seat. And his clothing was white as snow, the hair on his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames with wheels of burning fire. A stream of fire flowed from his presence. Thousands and thousands ministered to him. Millions and millions stood before him. Then the court was convened and the books were opened. And I kept watching. Then because of the arrogant words which the horn was speaking, I watched as the animal was killed and its body was destroyed and it was given over to be burned up completely. Now as for the other animals, their rulership was taken away. But their lives were prolonged for a time and a season. And I kept watching the night visions, and when I saw, coming with the clouds of heaven, someone like a son of man. And he approached the Ancient One who was led, and was led into his presence. And to him was given rulership, glory, and a kingdom, so that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His rulership is an eternal rulership. It will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Now as for me, Daniel... My spirit deep within me was troubled. The visions in my head frightened me. And I approached one of those standing by and asked him what all of this really meant. And he said that he would make me understand how to interpret these things. These four huge animals are four kingdoms that will arise on earth. But the holy ones of the Most High will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, yes, forever and ever. Then I wanted to know what the fourth beast meant. The one that was different from all the others, so terrifying, with iron teeth, bronze nails, which devoured and crushed and stamped his feet on what was left. And what the ten horns on his head meant. And the other horn which sprang up and before which the three fell. The horn that had eyes and a mouth speaking arrogantly and seemed greater than the others. And I watched. And that horn made war with the holy ones and was winning until the ancient one came. Judgment was given in favor of the Holy Ones of the Most High. And then the time came for the Holy Ones to take over the kingdom. This is what he said. The fourth animal will be a fourth kingdom on earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms. It will devour the whole earth. Trample it down and crush it. Now as for the ten horns. Out of this kingdom ten kings will arise, and yet another will arise after them. Now he will be different from the earlier ones, and he will put down three kings. He will speak words against the Most High and try to exhaust the Holy Ones of the Most High. He will attempt to alter the seasons and the law. And the Holy Ones will be handed over to him for a time, times, and half a time. But when the court goes into session, he will be stripped of his rulership which will be consumed and completely destroyed. Then the kingdom, the rulership, and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the holy people of the Most High. Their kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will serve and obey them. This is the end of the account. Now as for me, Daniel, my thoughts frightened me so much I turned pale. But I kept the matter to myself. So Daniel 7 helps us to understand some things about the sea beast of Revelation 13. The connection between Daniel 7 and Revelation 13 is unmistakable. Notice how both Daniel's and John's beast arise from where? The sea. Both are sea beasts and to my thinking are exactly the same beast. 
Daniel's beasts resemble a lion, a bear, and a leopard. There is also a fourth beast, but it's unlike the other three in the sense that it cannot be compared to any known living animal. It's not compared to any animal. It's far more powerful, ferocious, insatiable in its desire to do harm. So in Revelation 13, we find John's sea beast that was like a leopard. But it had feet like a bear and a mouth like a lion. Essentially, in Revelation 13, John's sea beast is a hybrid, or maybe better, a composite of all four of Daniel's beasts. And when you add up the heads and the horns of all four of Daniel's beasts, guess what you get? Seven total heads and ten total horns. Exactly the description of John's sea beast. Bottom line, Daniel's sea beast is the same as John's sea beast. And John's sea beast received its power and position and authority from the dragon, a form of Satan. And since the sea beast has similar physical attributes and gets its power and authority from the dragon, then the sea beast is also a form of Satan. Yet clearly since it is the dragon who dispenses power and authority, the dragon is preeminent. Now I'm going to conclude to say that among most Christian Bible commentators who write Revelation commentaries, the dragon is figurative of Satan and the sea beast of Revelation 13 is figurative of the Antichrist. However, other modern writers and even ancient early church fathers, such as Achaemenius, see the sea beast not as the Antichrist, but as the false prophet. Now, whatever conclusions we may come to, please note that to this point in Revelation, no such identification has been made. While the dragon is positively identified in Revelation 12 as Satan, the sea beast is not further identified at this point and is going to be the same for the land beast when we get to that. So be aware that while it might seem as though it's a fairly universal agreement within Christianity as to the identities of the sea and the land beasts, there is not. And when we find such a situation in both the historical past and in the present, it means we need to be wise. We need to hold whatever conclusions we might come to about these identities lightly. Lightly, not rigidly. We'll continue with Revelation chapter 13 next week.